first two verses of Acts chapter 14. So do you guys like it when everyone likes you? Who likes it best when everyone likes you and everyone gets along with you and you get to have fun with everybody? Yeah. Who doesn't like it when people don't like us and people are mad at us and are mean to us and hate us even? Who doesn't like that? I don't like that. They do it to you all the time. Well, maybe we should talk about that sometime. That's terrible. Hmm. But you know what? Listen. Now, it happened in Iconium that they went, Paul and Barnabas is the they. Paul and Barnabas went together to the synagogue, that's like the church of the Jews, and they spoke, and a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed in Jesus. That's good news. They spoke, and everyone liked what they said, and they believed what they said, and they were all high-fiving Paul and Barnabas. But you know what the next verse says? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And eventually it didn't turn out really good for them because they poisoned their minds so much that they ran Paul and Barnabas out of town. How would you like it if you were so hated that people ran you out of town? That wouldn't be cool, would it? But do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said if we live for him in this world, do you know that if we live for Jesus and we do the things that Jesus does and we talk the way that Jesus talks and we act the way that Jesus acts, do you know that Jesus said that men won't like us? That a lot of men won't like us. They'll reject us. They may even run us out of town like they did Paul and Barnabas. In fact, Jesus said, be careful when everyone thinks you're really good and great. Because it could mean that you're not living to please Jesus. You may be living to please people. So, you guys don't have to raise your hand, but listen to this. Listen to what I'm fixing to ask you and think about this. Have you ever done something just because everybody else is doing it? Like, just a while ago, you guys were doing this thing, and all of a sudden, everybody's doing this. So, have you ever done something just because everybody else is doing it? Yeah. Have you ever done something wrong just because everybody else is doing it, and you didn't want to go against the crowd? Yeah. Do you know God tells us not to do that? God tells it's better for people... It's better for our friends not to approve of us and our friends not to like us and to do the right thing than to just do what our friends want us to do even though it's wrong just because we want to please our friends. So the question is, do you want to please God or do you want to please your friends? You might say, well, I want to do both. I want to please God and my friends, and that's, that's great. But sometimes we might not be able to do that. Sometimes we might have to make a choice whether we're going to please God or please the people around us. And when that happens, you need to make sure that you make a cho choice to please God. Even if it means the people around you are going to be mad at you and they're not going to like you. Even if they did like they did with Paul and Barnabas and they ran you out of town. That would be a horrible thing to have happen. But you know what's more horrible than being run out of town? Rejecting God and choosing to please man more than you please God. That's more horrible than being run out of town. That's more horrible than your friends not liking you. That's more horrible than having to play by yourself for a while because your friends want you to do something that's not good and you refuse to do it. It's better to please God than it is to please your friends. So I want you to remember that, okay? Because you might have to make that choice one day. You've already made it, you said. And it might be that you're going to have to make it again. And as you get older, your choices have bigger consequences. Do you know what that means? You know what a consequence is? 
you disobey your parents, your consequence might be getting taken to the spanking room and spanked. Or not getting to do something that you want to do. But you know, as you get older, the consequences of your actions, your bad actions, your bad choices, get worse. That's why your parents take you to the spanking room and discipline you now. So you don't have to suffer really bad consequences later when you decide you're going to disobey God. Because if you learn your lesson now, you'll learn that it's better to please God than it is to please men. And then maybe you'll avoid some really big consequences later on in life, okay? All right, let's read the rest of this story. Y'all ready? Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both the Jews and the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the words of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers, to abuse and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. So everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking. And Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought an oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Give us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Think about that. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And after they had passed through Poseidia and came to Pamphylia, now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and there they sailed to Antioch. And after they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed... Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the gospel of Christ. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds, illuminate your word, that it would work in us to change us, to transform us, indeed to conform us to the very image of the Son of God. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Acts chapter 14, we have the finished record of Paul's first missionary journey. He started in Antioch, and by the time we get to the end of chapter 14, Paul is back in Antioch. Him and Barnabas are. And so Acts chapter 13 and 14 record this, this trip of Paul around the Mediterranean, up into Asia, and then back down to Antioch where he started. And here in Acts chapter 14, they are in uh, the city of Iconium. And it says that in Iconium, they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. The synagogue is, is, is the system of worship that the Jews began when they were in Babylon. Remember, the Babylonians tore down their temple. There was no temple. They're in Babylon, so they developed congregations, uh, synagogues, centers of worship. And this really is where the church came from. Our church today, as we know it, gathering in these buildings and worshiping God, really came out of the Jewish synagogue. And so as it was Paul and Barnabas' custom, because they were Jews, every city they went to, because there were Jews in all the cities that they went to, they would go into the synagogue. Because the gospel was given to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Jesus said this, Paul later affirms this in Romans 1.16. So as it was their custom, they would go into the synagogue and they would preach to the Jews, Jesus. And it says that they preached, they spoke uh, to the multitude, and it says both Jews and Greeks. So that, that word Greeks could mean proselytes. It could mean people that had converted to Judaism. It could mean Jews who lived in Greek culture and lived by, according to Greek culture, not that they disobeyed the commandments of God, but they were Greeks. They spoke Greek. They read a Greek Bible. The Old Testament recorded in Greek. They were culturally Greeks. Uh, whatever this means, we know that when they preached the gospel, Jews believed, proselytes believed, and Gentiles believed. And it says here that when they spoke the word of the Lord, when, as they spoke to these Jews in the synagogues, great multitudes of both Jews and Greeks believed. But verse 2 tells us that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. So these cities were predominantly Gentile cities. There were Jews in all of these cities. There were remnants of, of Jews from the dispersion from, uh, from throughout the centuries as Israel was judged and she was judged and the Assyrians carried them away and the Babylonians carried them away and then you know, the successive empires in these cities. And not all the Jews went back to Jerusalem to live in Judea and, 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 and in the areas of Jerusalem. Many of them stayed in the cities that they were dispersed to over the centuries and built communities there. And that's why there were synagogues in all of these cities. But these were predominantly Gentile cities. And so as Paul went in and preached the gospel, as Paul and Barnabas spoke the gospel and Jews believed, and, and Greeks believed, and Gentiles believed, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, the predominant members of the cities and the cultures that they were preaching in, and it says they poisoned their minds against the brethren. Verse 3 says, therefore, they stayed there a long time. <laughs> now, we're going to see, we're going to talk about this as we go through these verses. They didn't say, oh, They've poisoned the minds of the Gentiles. We better leave. No, they said, no, we're going to stay. We're going to work harder. We're going to work longer, and we're going to work harder to make disciples because the unbelieving Jews are poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. That means our job just got more difficult. Not impossible, but more difficult because now we've got to deal with the falsehoods and the lies and all the things that the unbelieving Jews are telling the Gentiles. They already had with the Gentiles who were pagans, they had to overcome paganism. But guess what? The gospel is able to do that. It's able to overcome every obstacle that we might face. So what we see here is with the preaching of the gospel, there was opposition. 
Opposition to the gospel should never be surprising. It should never be unexpected for us. When men oppose us because of the gospel, we should not be surprised by that. And we shouldn't be upset by that. We should just realize this is normal. This is what the church has had to deal with for since its inception, really since the beginning of creation. Opposition to the gospel should never be surprising or unexpected. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in being a partaker of Christ's sufferings. That sounds foreign to us. We don't like to think about suffering. But the Bible says rejoice when you suffer. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. So as these unbelieving Jews poison the minds of the Gentiles, they were blaspheming God. But they were bringing glory to these faithful witnesses. We will always face opposition to the gospel, but we must be committed to press through that opposition by speaking boldly the truth in love. When we face opposition, that's not the time to back down. That's the time to be bold. We must approach the work of the Great Commission with diligence and patience. Exactly what we see here. Opposition arose. What did they do? They stayed there a long time and worked harder is what they did. So we approach the Great Commission with diligence and patience, being prepared to face whatever degree or intensity of opposition the unbelieving world may bring. What we're seeing and what we're facing in terms of opposition and hostility today in our culture is a result of this fundamental conflict between the gospel and the lie, between the truth and the lie, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This is the fundamental conflict between good and evil, the spirit and the flesh. It will continue until Jesus returns to put his final enemy, which is death, under his feet. We've been given great hope in Christ. Christ has won the victory, so we also, we also have won the victory. If we are in Christ, our destiny is not in question. If we are in Christ, our victory is not in question. It does not matter what happens on the ground in the earth, in our culture, in our time. It doesn't matter who wins or loses an election. We win. It doesn't matter if they outlaw the gospel or not. We win. It doesn't matter if they close down our churches or not. We win because Christ has won. Now, I don't want any of those things to happen, but they happen to Paul and Barnabas. They happen throughout the centuries, throughout the millennium, to churches to the church, to the people of God. So we should not be surprised by the opposition we are seeing in our culture today. Listen to these words of promise in Paul's ending words to, of his letter to the church at Rome. Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That same promise is ours today. Satan opposes us. We need to understand that. Paul writes this in Ephesians. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Satan uses flesh and blood. He lies to flesh and blood. He turns flesh and blood against the gospel just like the unbelieving Jew poisoned the minds of the, of the Gentiles. But what Paul and Barnabas understood is the Gentiles aren't our enemy. We need to preach the gospel to them so they stop being our enemy. The enemy is, is Satan. The enemy is the serpent. The enemy is the father of lies. The enemy is the one who's had murder in his heart since the beginning. That's our enemy. 
He works through flesh and blood, but what, how do we counter that? We counter that with the gospel by preaching the gospel to flesh and blood so that that flesh and blood no longer opposes us, but now joins us. This is the same opposition that we've seen from the beginning. Satan opposing God. But here's the promise. He will be crushed under our feet shortly. We experience the very same opposition Adam experienced. The very same opposition Noah experienced. Moses, David, and Jesus experienced the same opposition. This is the same opposition that the early Christians faced that we're reading about here in the book of Acts. This is the same opposition that led to the great reformation in 1517. This is the same opposition that led to the great awakenings in the Americas we talked about last week. This is the same opposition that, that awakened a church in the great missionary movements of the last three centuries that took place that literally took the gospel all over this globe. God has made sure the church responds and even flourishes under opposition and persecution. We are no different today. We are seeing the normal course of history, the conflict, the great author has written into his great story. The history of the world is the history of the church. God created this world for his people and for his glory. If you listen to the secularists, they'll tell you that the church is just part of history. A, a small, insignificant part now. Yes, it's had a great impact but, of course, we've spiritually evolved beyond the Bible. We've spiritually evolved beyond the mythical beliefs that, that men have held for so many centuries. We know better than that now. And they think the church is just a passing, irrelevant part of history. At least that's what they hope it is. They hope it's passing. That's why you see Antifa and BLM burning flags and Bibles in the streets of Portland and other communities where they are peacefully protesting. Because the fundamental opposition taking place is not an opposition to a political party or a politician or a political system. The fundamental opposition taking place is spiritual. It is the battle of evil versus good. And we know how the story ends, good wins. And so we have hope. And so God has caused the church throughout history to flourish in these circumstances under these conditions. The church will always face opposition from the world. Creation is God's glorious story of the redemption of his people by the creator. This is why opposition to the gospel should never surprise us. It's written into his story. God has written this opposition into his story. He's written this conflict into his story. And we are meant to face that conflict, that opposition, headlong knowing that we are victorious even in death. I don't know if you've ever read it, but there's a famous poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called The Charge of the Light Brigade. We hear two lines of this poem quoted very often, and people probably don't know where the poem comes from. It's a poem Tennyson wrote as a result of a real historical event, which was The Charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War between Britain and Russia. And out of a an error, a miscommunication during the midst of this one particular battle, this light cavalry brigade of 600 was ordered to ride down, down the very throat of this heavily armed Russian artillery unit. And as the chargers are charging, they don't realize that this was not the real order. This was a miscommunication. And in the second stanza of this poem, it says, Forward, the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew. Someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. There's not to reason why. There's but 
to do and die. We all question. We all reason why, at least from time to time, me more often than time to time. God's will and God's ways. We reason why. Why, God? Why are you, why are you doing it this way? Why, God? Why is this your will? That's normal for humans. But for redeemed humans, for all that have become part of the army of the Lord, we are called to endure hardship like good soldiers. We're called to face our spiritual enemy with clear determination, knowing that our victory is in the Lord. Whatever the cost or whatever the ultimate reward our obedience brings, it is not ours to reason why, but it is ours to do and to die. None of us are going to escape this life alive. We will all die. Even if the Lord should return while we are still alive, the Bible is very clear that this body will be transformed. In other words, this thing is going to die, and I'm going to put on something new. So however you want to think about it, the reality is every single human being will face death. Ultimately, it is our obedience in the face of opposition that is the true test. Well, the light brigade, just in case you're wondering how it all turned out, the light brigade actually made it and defeated that Russian unit. But it cost them over 40% of the 600 that rode down into that valley to face those blazing guns. They were faithful. They were obedient to their duty. Unlike the British command that day in the Crimean War, God does not make mistakes. God does not send wrong communications or right communications to the wrong people. God will never send you into the throat, into the valley of death, unless it's His will. God will never send you against seemingly superior firepower unless he has a plan and a purpose in it. God can send you into impossible situations that look absolutely and completely hopeless to us. And God knows whether we're going to be one of the 600 riding back in victory having survived, or whether we're going to be one of the 600 that fell doing our obedience. Doing and dying. The reality is, we are all called to do, and we are all called to die. We just don't know when. We just don't know how. But what we do know is God calls us to obedience. And God has already won and guaranteed our victory. Saul grew impatient in the face of his enemy, King Saul. He needed to sacrifice to ensure his victory. He needed to, to offer a sacrifice to God to make himself feel better about going into battle. He dare not go into battle not having sacrificed. He became impatient, waiting he became impatient waiting for Samuel to show up. And instead of obeying God and patiently waiting, Saul took it upon himself to act in what he thought God would be pleased with. How often do we do that? Oh, I think God will be pleased with this. I'm just going to do something that has pleased God before. I'm going to do something that I know God has been pleased with before. I just need to do something, so I'm going to do this. It cost Saul dearly. His disobedience did. His disobedience cost him dearly. It cost him not only the battle that day, but it cost him his kingdom. The word of God spoken to King Saul through the judge and the prophet Samuel are true for us today. To obey is better than sacrifice. In the face of our opposition, let us obey God 
well. And it goes on in verse 3 of Acts chapter 14. It says that God, as they witnessed the word of God, as they witnessed to the word of his grace, God was granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God grants us the means necessary to carry out his plan and his purpose. The Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of the disciples. We must have faith that God will grant to us the means necessary, natural or supernatural, to accomplish his plan and his purpose. We must always remember that we are part of his plan and his purpose. He is the author of his story. We are called to obey his will, not our own. We are called to obediently conform to his plan and his purpose, not our own. What, what is supposed to happen as we pray is that our will, our plans, our purposes become in line with God's. So that his will is my will. His plan is my plan. His purpose is my purpose. And I'm not working contrary to God, in opposition to God, but I'm working in concert, in harmony with God. That's what prayer does. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. That means we must be willing to accept what God grants. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is being able to accept what God does not grant. Very often we think we know exactly what God should grant us, and we know exactly when he should do it. God grants to us all manner of things all the time. We very often take those things for granted, pun intended or not. Do you realize what God has granted us? Every day, every moment of every day, what God has granted to us. That is pure grace. We're blind to it. We don't see it. We need to pray that God would help us in our blindness, be able to see the things he has so freely granted to us every day, instead of seeing the things that he will not grant to us in those moments we think he should. Very often, even though we may not voice it, we believe that we know better than God. This is why we get upset with God when he does not do to suit us when he does not answer the prayer how we want it answered, when we want it answered, when he does not grant to us the thing that we are sure that we need or that person needs right now, it's because we think we know better than God. We think God doesn't understand our situation. We think God doesn't know what's really going on. Like Martha and Mary who said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, don't miss the implied sooner there. They don't say it. But what they're really saying is, if you'd have been here sooner, our brother would still be alive. But you dilly-dallied around, and it took you four days to get here, and now he's dead. If you would have been here, as if Jesus could not have kept Lazarus from getting ill to begin with, much less from dying from wherever he was. Do we believe that God is in control? Was Jesus in control when he got word of Lazarus' sickness and he delays for two days to make sure Lazarus was dead so that it would be four days later after his death that he actually gets there? Do you think that was lost to Jesus? Absolutely not. Do we believe God is in control? We all say that he is, but we act very differently very often. We become angry because God is allowing this and not preventing that. We wonder why God does not do things the way we would. I can look at a situation and know exactly what needs to be done, or at least what I believe needs to be done out of my limited knowledge. And we would never say this, and we don't consciously think this, but the way we very often live is that God is also living and acting from limited knowledge. 
But God does not have limited knowledge. He has unlimited knowledge, unlimited power, unlimited ability to do whatever he so pleases to do or chooses to do. What is it that gives us faith? Well, we know faith comes from God. It's a gift from God. But my point is, why do we trust God? It's the love of God. Faith working through love. Now abide these three, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Why? For love never fails. Why does love never fail? Because God is love. This is why we have hope in the midst of opposition and even persecution. Love never fails because God is love. And God, God can never fail. And God never fails us. It doesn't matter what happens. God never fails us. The reason why we may even die as we do. We reason why. Why, God? And as we reason why, we, we may die. But even in death, the scripture is clear that we win. In God, we win because God is love and he has conquered all, even death by his love. That's why we sing the, strong, the song, love is stronger than death. Jesus proved that. The tomb is empty. We may not like opposition. We certainly don't like persecution. But we should not fear it. We should not fear the opposition, even the persecution that, that may come to us. We can be assured that God will grant to us the means necessary to carry out his plan and purpose. Our past, our part is to be obedient, to charge forward, not foolishly, but faithfully. Some would have looked at the charge of the light brigade and now knowing what we know from history, we say it was foolishness to make that charge. But for those soldiers riding those horses that day, obeying the orders of their commanding officers, they weren't being foolish, they were being faithful. And to the world, our faithfulness to God looks like foolishness to them. It's exactly what the scripture says. The world thinks we're foolish because we actually believe the Bible. And we're actually going to do what the Bible says. It's utter foolishness to the world. It's like the charge of the light brigade. It's like looking back and saying, you guys are crazy. You should have never made that charge. But there's a big difference here. Our commander-in-chief doesn't make mistakes. Our commander-in-chief sends us into the face of death knowing that he's already defeated it. It looks like foolishness to the world. But when God sees us obediently charging forward in the face of our opposition, he doesn't see foolishness. He sees faithfulness. This is why we trust him. This is why we don't fear what man can do to us. But we trust. We trust in God. It goes on in these, these verses and it says, they stayed there for a long time, but the multitude, the multitude in the city was divided, part with the Jews, part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled. And as they fled, they went to these cities preaching the gospel. So here's kind of an interesting thing. They face opposition, and it says they stay there for a long time. But then they face more opposition, and it says they fled. What do we take from that? We need to know when we take our stand and when we live to fight another day. We need to know when to take a stand, and we need to know when to stand down. We, know the different, we need to know the difference between taking a stand and it being faithful in refusing to back down and just being stubborn. Because, 
For some reason, God put it upon the hearts of these disciples to flee that city. He could have changed the hearts of the Jews and the Gentiles. He could have thwarted the plan to have them killed, that violent plan, whatever it was. But instead, God put it on their hearts, and he says, get out of town. The multitude of the, the, multitude of the city was divided. They developed this violent plan. The disciples become aware of it, and they fled to Lystra and to Derby. We see constant opposition to the gospel, but we also see many receiving and believing the gospel. There is not a blanket rule for when to stand and fight and when to move to another hill and take our stand again. There's not a blanket rule. This is why it's important for us to know the voice of God. Why it's important for us to know the word of God. That we see God doing both. Stand and fight to the death. Get out of town. Run for your life. And the difference is the wisdom of God. And if you don't know the voice of God and you don't know the wisdom of God, you're going to have a really hard time discerning what to do in these moments. We see the disciples shake the dust off their feet after being rejected. We see them staying a long time in one place, speaking boldly in the Lord. We see them flee in the face of violent persecution. And then we see them violently persecuted. After they flee a violent attempt in one city, we see in Acts 14, 19 through 20, Paul stoned and left for dead outside of another. They stoned him and thought he was dead, and they drug his supposedly dead body outside of the city and left it by the side of the road. And all of his friends and the other disciples, they come and gather around him. It's like, oh my gosh. I'm sure they were praying because the Bible says Paul got up and he walked back into the city. Kind of sounds like a sci-fi movie, right? Sounds like the immortals. As long as you don't cut my head off, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to come fight you again. It's kind of what happened to Paul until they did cut his head off. You know, that's how Paul died, cut his head off. Because he was a Roman citizen. That's what they did with Roman citizens. They gave them a humane death. To a Jew, that wasn't a humane death. That was an abominable death. You didn't want to have your head cut off if you were a Jew. So it was kind of like a double thing for Paul. They did it because he was a Roman citizen. That's the way they executed Roman citizens, but being a Jew. But he didn't die this day. He walks back into the city. Opposition to the gospel is a common denominator in all of these situations. They did different things facing opposition, but the common denominator was the opposition. What the disciples did in the face of the opposition was different depending upon their circumstance, depending upon how the gospel was received or not received. They never said, there's more against us than there are for us, so let's leave town. That wasn't the point. They weren't wetting their finger and, and seeing which way the wind was blowing. They weren't taking a poll like our politicians and making decisions based on what the majority of people believe. That's not what these disciples did. That's not what we should do. The response to the gospel was a major factor in determining whether they would stay or whether they would go and how long. Just as these disciples had to seek God's wisdom and how to work and how to fight, when to stand against their opposition and when to stand down, so do we. We have to know. We have to have the wisdom of God in order to know how to work how to fight, how to stand, when to stand down. We need the wisdom of God to guide us in our work and in our spiritual warfare. The most obvious way we find God's wisdom is through God's word. God points us to his word as a guide for knowing his will. God has given us his Holy Spirit as the guide to lead us through the word and to illuminate that word according to his will. That means God very often provides illumination to us on an as-needed basis. It's why you can read a scripture a thousand times, and then the thousand and first time that you read it, a light bulb goes off, and God reveals something to you in that scripture that you never saw before. It's always been there. It's just that the Holy Spirit, in that moment, for his reason, for his plan, for his purpose, illuminates that word in your heart to give you wisdom that you're going to need. 
This is why the Bible says it's line upon line, precept upon precept. You can only receive that illumination of God's word if you immerse yourself in God's word. The disciples were led by God's spirit, but not apart from God's word. It is the same for us today. We have a lot of people in the church that want to be led by God's spirit, but they don't want to take the time to read God's word. They just want God to speak to them. Well, he will through his word. God will give wisdom on the choices we make from how we spend our money to how we spend our time. When to stand and fight or when to stand down from a fight. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to each liberally and without reproach, it will be given to him. Liberally and without reproach, it will be given to him. Ask and you shall receive. God will give us the wisdom we need as we ask him, as we seek him. Then, then we must obey him and walk in the wisdom that he gives to us. It's no good to have wisdom if you're not going to apply it. And the only way we can apply the, obe- the, the wisdom of God is through being obedient to God. Gos- the gospel demands we turn from useless things to the living God and Verse 15 of Acts 14, they go to another city. They heal a lame man who's been lame since birth. And the people in the city think they're the gods come down in in the form of men. And they begin to sacrifice to them and lift them up as Zeus and Hermes. And Paul, fearing for his life, is crying out to these people, What are you doing Saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. We could have preached the whole sermon right there. Turn from these useless things. What useless things do we turn to? Instead of to the living God. What useless things do we struggle with. Instead of turning to the living God. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea. And all that are in them. Paul says we preach that you should turn. This is not the same word as repent. In Acts 2.38 when the men of Israel say Men and brethren, what should we do? Paul says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The word repent there in Acts chapter 2 means to, to change your mind. Here, this word turn is correctly, it's literally what it means. It means to turn, not to just change your mind, but to turn from these useless things. To repent means to change your mind. When we repent, if we have repented, we will turn from the useless things to the living God. The Jews were keeping the law. They were living moral lives. Their problem was they didn't trust Jesus. We have pagans here living immoral lives, not only do they not know Jesus, not only do they not trust Jesus, their lives are completely corrupted and immoral. And Paul says, you've got to turn from these things. But the only way they can do that is to turn in their mind. And the only way we can turn physically from the things that are useless in our life is to literally turn from them. Stop doing that. Stop taking that, stop watching that, stop doing that, stop participating in that. Stop turning to that and turn to the living God. We cannot repent unless we turn. Paul was not just telling the people of Lystra to change their minds. He he told them, yes, to repent, but he's telling them to literally turn to God, turn away from these idols. Think about it, church. We have all sorts of idols in our life that take all sorts of forms. It's not as easy for us to point to a totem pole or a statue or an icon that we have in a little altar there. Most of those things that we worship aren't seen and don't take the same form. 
what you invest your time in, what you invest your talent, your treasure in, is what you ultimately worship. Most of those things we worship boil down to a worship of self because what we love is what we do. Love God and you will do for God out of love. It is love that motivated Jesus to obey his Father. It was love that motivated the disciples to lay down their lives. It must be love that motivates you and I today to turn from useless things into the living God. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. This is what Paul says when he comes back to Antioch. This is what we've learned, brothers. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Strengthening their souls, the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. There is no entrance into the kingdom apart from tribulation. There, therefore, tribulation is not something we can escape in this world, nor should we try to. Nor should we despise it when it comes, even though it's very unpleasant. And I must admit, I despise it very often. But we've got to go from just despising things to beginning to, to, to seek God's wisdom. God, what are you doing through this? What are you, why, God? Are you doing this? Show me. Help me understand so that I can better obey you as I walk through the tribulations of this world. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we are in a manner praying for tribulation. Not because we want tribulation, but because we want his kingdom to come and we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Those are not my words. Those are God's words. We must learn how to be thankful in and for all things, even tribulation. Our opportunity is before us. We're living in times right now in our nation, times of tribulation. This is our great opportunity to be thankful in and for all things. I can think of all sorts of ways this can go. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to have a very difficult time thanking God, depending on how things happen in our nation. But this is exactly what the scripture commands us to do. This is our opportunity to be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests known to God. We bear witness to God, to those around us, by our thankfulness to Him in all things. It is a work in progress for us all, but a work we must be willing to dive headlong into without retreat. We must not only learn to practice being thankful, we must practice being faithful. Faithfulness is not determined by our convenience, it is determined by our obedience. And those early disciples faced much opposition, even violent persecution. Disciples today are facing the same thing all across this globe. Keep in mind, Paul and Barnabas were missionaries they are planting churches and suffering persecution in that work. And Paul and Barnabas did not just go once and mark those cities and those churches off their list. Been there, done that. Ooh, remember when we got stoned? Remember, remember Barnabas when they drug me out of the city and he thought I was dead and I got up and I went back into the city? <laughs> Man, I'm glad I never have to go back to that city again. Wrong. It's exactly what they did. They were much more faithful than just marking cities and churches off their list, never going back. They went back to all of these churches. They went back to all of these cities, not, not just later on. They did it in the midst of this missionary journey. Not to evangelize again, but to install elders, overseers in those churches. This is what it says in verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. These disciples who planted these churches came and went, but they left in place elders to oversee the churches, to continue the work of making disciples and seeing the kingdom come. They testified and gave glory to God for all that God had done. Verse 27 now, when they had come and gathered the church together, this is back at Antioch, they reported all that God had done 
with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They testified to all that God had done, that he had opened the door to faith for the Gentiles. These disciples knew that they were obedient, they were faithful, but they also knew that the glory belonged to the Lord. It didn't belong to them. It was God's glory. It was what God had ultimately done. Jesus said it true when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. They gave glory to God for what he had done. They knew it was the grace of God granted to them that healed the sick, the lame, that opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and every other work that was done to God's glory. It was what God had done. It was what God had granted. It is the same for us today. God is still pouring out grace. God is still granting that works be done in his name. God is still opening hearts and minds to the gospel. God is still giving the gift of faith. God is still saving souls. And God does it in the face of the, the most dark, vile opposition you can imagine. No one's going to bury us under a pile of stones and drag us out the city limits of Taylor and leave us there for dead and go back rejoicing that we just got rid of the troublemaker, not fearing that you're going to get arrested by the police because the rulers of the cities, were, they were out there throwing rocks at you too. There was no fear of, there was no fear of, of, of a consequence there. We don't live in that time. Yet. But they may oppose us. They may call you names. They may cancel you. They may not want to play with you anymore. They may write bad things about you and say bad things about you. They might even put you in jail for hate speech. But the question is are we going to be faithful because it's convenient to be faithful? When it's convenient to be faithful, are we going to be faithful? Because God is faithful. In obedient. Because that is what defines faithfulness. And when we come to this table, it reminds us that Jesus was obedient even to death. And Jesus asked his father, Father, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will yours be done. As you come to this table today, you think about the obedience of Jesus. Think about the faithfulness of Jesus that has saved your soul, that has given you victory. No matter what happens to you in this life, you have victory in Jesus and you have conquered sin and death because Jesus has conquered sin and death. And this table reminds us of that reality. This table and God in his grace invites us to his table to remind us that we would remember even in the face of our opposition that Jesus has overcome. And because Jesus has overcome, so too shall we. So church, trust Jesus. Come to the table. Thank him for his faithfulness. And be thankful and be faithful even as Jesus is. Let's stand. Well, in my charge to you today, my, my charge is to fear not, for God is with us. And I say that because I, I do believe this, not because I'm a naysayer or a pessimist. I'm actually very optimistic because I believe in Christ, and I believe God's promises. But I think we would be less than realistic if we did not at least entertain the possibility that as the days and weeks and months advance, our opportunity to be fearful will be there, if not increasing. This is why we should be praying. We should be praying about what's happening in the church and outside the church. We should be praying about what's taking place in our own lives so that our will is aligned with God's will, so that we can see His hope and not fear, 
so that we can by faith look at the future and not be fearful. Fear not, for God is with us. It's said that there's 365 times God tells us to not fear in the Bible, one for every day. In the face of our opposition, we must not lose heart, but take heart. We must believe God and His Word. We must believe that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. This is the Word of God. Believe it. Remember, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Remember that even though the weapons of our warfare, we are tempted to use fleshly means. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is through that spiritual weaponry that God gives us that we can bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Our faithfulness will be measured in our obedience and our obedience will punish all disobedience. Do not be moved by the opposition of this world. Be moved by God. Go to the battle, go to the work, and do it for his glory. Amen.